Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Alec Lucas discusses Vanguard in 2021. Amy Arnott fills us in on the latest diversification strategies for 2022. Christine Ben shares her tips for new retirees. And Robbie Greengold shares his thoughts on Fidelity's run in 2021. Let's get started. Here is Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. and Alec Lucas from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Vanguard's funds remain popular choices for investors this year. Here to review the year in Vanguard and talk about what we might see from the firm in 2022 is Alec Lucas. Alec is a strategist with Morningstar's manager research group, and Vanguard is among the fund families he follows. Hi, Alec. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So let's start out talking a little bit about flows to Vanguard funds in in 2021, Um, you know, how it compared to other asset managers, and in particular, which types of funds were resonating most with investors? Yeah, another good year for Vanguard, and if you can put it this way, a bit of a rebound. Um, In 2020, BlackRock, including its iShares business, took in more money than Vanguard, and it was on pace to do that through the first half of 2021. That's no longer the case. Our flows data at the firm level is only through October, but so far uh, through October, Vanguard's ahead of BlackRock and iShares. It's taken in about $292 billion versus about $258 for BlackRock and iShares. that fact itself, combined, combined with the fact that J.P. Morgan and Fidelity are, are far behind in the $80 uh, billion dollars for, for inflows, says something about investor interest. Namely, it continues to shift towards passive. What's quite interesting is when you drill down and look at the funds taking in new money, uh, the top fund taking in new money is an international bond fund for Vanguard that just launched. And bond funds make up three of the top four funds in terms of new money uh, year to date, and that that data is through through November. Um, the other big one that, that stood out was a Treasury Inflation Protected Short Term Securities Fund. So it says something about investors' worries about inflation. If you look at active equity funds, Vanguard Equity Income is the one that's taken in the most new money. So again, the yo- low yield environment and investors sort of hunt for yield. Uh, it speaks to that. So let's pivot and talk a little bit about performance in 2021. Um, A couple of funds in particular that had strong performances relative to their peers this year were Wellington and Windsor, too. Let's drill down a little bit and talk about why they did as well as they did. Yeah, another good year for Wellington, and that's a good sign. Dan Posen took over for longtime manager Edward Bauza pretty recently, um, and it's been a top decile performer in its Morningstar category. It's helped by having an above average equity weighting. It's typically had around 65% of its assets uh, in equities, and that's the case through September as well. Had some good stock picks, Alphabet, Microsoft, Charles Schwab, Home Depot, all of them have gained more than 50% year to date, and that's helped the fund. And then what about Windsor 2? Windsor 2 has had a sub-advisor change that took place in December of 2019 when Aristotle Capital was added and they removed Barrow Hanley, which was a a longtime manager of the fund that had more of a value orientation. What's interesting about Windsor 2 is its portfolios really shifted more towards the border between blend and value Mm. uh, and is on pace perhaps to change into the Morningstar large blend category if current trends persist. Having a bit of a blend orientation has helped it in a year like this. Uh, it's had some good stock picks too. Microsoft has been a winner for it. Alphabet, Dan Harris one that uh, also stands out. 
So let's sort of look at the other side of things, maybe a couple of funds that are popular at Vanguard, but maybe have disappointed a little bit relative to their peers this year. Um, first being prime cap and then Vanguard dividend growth. Yeah, prime cap and Vanguard dividend growth, interestingly enough, and their investor shares have almost matched each other with year-to-date mm. uh, returns of about 20.5%. In absolute terms, that's great. Um, relative to the large blend category, that puts them bottom, bottom quintile. So um, a little bit different in terms of the drivers for each fund with prime cap. It, of course, was long, for a long time in large growth, and it shifted to blend uh, last year, I believe. And it's really been hurt by having a top 10 position in Alibaba. The managers like Alibaba and began to build a position, um, I think it was in 2020. Um, uh, but Alibaba's come under uh, fires, have a lot of Chinese stocks because of regulatory scrutiny. It's lost about 50%, so that obviously has hurt the fund. Um, with Vanguard Dividend Growth, what's quite interesting is as granular as our Morningstar categories are, um, they're still not perfect, and it requires some nuance to interpret results. And Vanguard Dividend Growth is a great example of that this year. Though it places in the bottom quintile of its category, it has a dividend growth focus that's quite distinctive, that has good downside protection and tends to lag in rallies like this one. And it's actually ahead of its benchmark year to date. So it's actually had a good year, not a bad year. And then Vanguard International Growth, there's a little bit of a flip-flop, it seems, <laughs> from a performance yeah. standpoint that's yeah. gone on there. Did really well relative to its peers in 2020 and hasn't been doing quite as well relative to its peers in 2021. What's been going on there? So the story here is similar to what's going on with Vanguard Prime Cap, except this is, of course, an international fund. It's about 70% allocated to ba Bailey Gifford and about 30% to Schroeder's. Bailey Gifford has long-liked Chinese stocks, and those have been the culprits here, Alibaba being one of them, some other ones, Neo, an electric car maker, Meituan, which is e-commerce, food delivery, Tencent, which is social networking, gaming. Those, those Chinese stocks have really hurt the portfolio this year. It gained about 60% in 2020, so an off year this year shouldn't be a huge surprise. Uh, Long-term, we continue to like the fund. And then let's talk a little bit about some changes Vanguard made to some of its funds this year, um, including a sub-advisor change at Vanguard U.S. Growth. Walk us through what happened there and what we think about it. Yeah, so Vanguard um, relieved Jackson Square Partners of their duties on March 1st. Um, it had been a sub-advisor for a little over a decade there and then reallocated um, assets among the existing sub-advisors. We continue to like the fund. The investor shares get a bronze rating. Uh, we give the people an above average rating. We're not sure that the combination of processes on the fund gives it an edge, so it's got an average rating there. But it continues to, to score highly because of our regard for Vanguard, and obviously the low fees help a lot. Um, now, Vanguard also changed the indices on two of the funds, two of its index funds, a Vanguard Dividend Depreciation Index and Vanguard International Dividend Depreciation Index. So what were the changes and what do we think of those? Yeah, so this is a very interesting development on the part of Vanguard. Um, it shows that Vanguard isn't content to, to sort of rest on its laurels. So VIG, Vanguard Dividend Appreciation, is an ETF that had tracked the NASDAQ U.S. Dividend Achievers benchmark. That was the same benchmark for Vanguard Dividend Growth. And they decided to go with an S&P Dividend Growers benchmark that has just debuted. The reason they did that is because they wanted to have a little bit more flexibility in terms of a three-day rebalance. So they, they couldn't be front run on securities. It's, it's free float weighted. I don't believe the other one was. So, so modest improvements in terms of the methodology of the benchmarking. And what that really goes to show is it's not that Vanguard Dividend Appreciation had been doing poorly, um, 
but they're always looking for incremental ways that can improve things. And I think that's a good example of Vanguard acting on investors' behalf. And it's, it's also quite possible, though Vanguard doesn't disclose it, that the licensing fees drops. Um, so that, that saves investors more money there, too. And then is it the same story with the international? Same story with the international. Got it. Yep. So um, interestingly, uh, in 2021, Vanguard launched or announced plans to launch several new actively managed funds. Yep. Let's talk about first uh, the new fixed income funds yep. that they launched. So they, they launched a multi-sector fixed income fund and a core plus fixed income fund. What's significant about that is Vanguard's approach to fixed income in terms of in-house equity, which is both of these funds are managed by Vanguard's in-house equity group. Uh, Jack Bogle had described it as virtual indexing. Mm. So in other words, we're going to give you active fixed income, but it's not going to take too many deviations from a standard benchmark. It's not going to be too aggressive. Um, in this case, it signifies a shift. This is the kind of strategy that they might have in the past outsourced mm. to, some, to a firm like Wellington, but this one's being developed in-house. They've added talent. Uh, Michael Chang's a new high-yield expert at Vanguard who joined them from Goldman Sachs in November 2017. So it really does signal a shift on Vanguard's part in terms of trying to have world-class capabilities and fixed income that can compete with the best, and we'll see how they do. And then um, they also debuted a set of high conviction active funds. Who are these funds for? And again, what do we think of them? Yeah, so they're for personal advisor services, businesses, clients. Um, the funds are run by some of Vanguard's most trusted sub-advisors and managers at those sub-advisors. So what they did is they debuted a, a dividend growth fund. It's run by Don Kilbart, who also runs Vanguard Dividend Growth. It's a more concentrated version of the strategy he uses for Vanguard Dividend Growth that he's run since about 2008. Uh, it has a better record than Vanguard Dividend Growth. A global value fund read by, run by David Palmer, who manages money for Vanguard Windsor. Um, and then they also have an international growth fund run by Bailey Gifford, Lawrence Burns, and James Anderson. James Anderson's retiring in April 2022, so Lawrence Burns will become the key person there following James Anderson's retirement. Uh, we think highly of all of those managers. Um, the funds are, as you would expect, cheap. And even if you add on a 30 basis point advisory fee, which is what, what you need, um, they would be still pretty competitively priced relative to other active options. Um, it is. It is important to mention that these are funds that are only available to Vanguard personal advisor services clients. clients. So that is a bit of a shift for Vanguard. Um, and it's something that uh, I think that from a capacity standpoint, it shows that if you want to be high conviction, if you want to be active, you're going to have limited capacity. These strategies are designed to take that into account. Mm -hmm. And so to some extent, there's some limitations on that. Um, so it is an attractive offer if you're a client or if you want to want to, want to um, opt for services, Vanguard services and advice. Um, I think that the, these offer a competitive, compelling, active option to be paired with with a passive core, perhaps, or even to go all active if mm -hmm. you have the temperament to do that. And then just a few weeks ago, Vanguard announced that it was launching an active fund focused on Chinese equities. Is that right? Yeah, that's an interesting development because in mid-March, um, Vanguard had got, decided to jettison its plans to launch Chinese index funds. Um, and then they announced plans, Bailey Gifford being, being the sub-advisor, to launch um, an ch active Chinese equities fund. Their research shows them that, or suggests to them rather, that um, there's a lot of inefficiency in the Chinese equity market. 
of course, efficiency helps you when you're doing an indexing approach, and it provides opportunity if you're an active manager. So um, they just announced that, and it'll debut next year. Um, so it's an interesting development and, and unique because it's not typical for Vanguard to debut an active fund devoted to one particular region. It shows the influence of China, and it's actually good timing. Uh, you don't want to launch a fund devoted to a particular country when it's done real well recently because uh, it could obviously uh, regress to the mean. In this case, it re could regress to the mean positively. So the timing could be good here. And then lastly, Alec, gaze into your crystal ball. What might we see from Vanguard in 2022? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this. Uh, it's become common to refer to Vanguard as an index provider. Um, if you look at the development of Vanguard's business, uh, passive assets really only started to dominate in terms of the firm-wide assets uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. um, Vanguard's business historically was built on the back of active management, Vanguard Wellington being the key fund in that respect, Windsor as well. I think that if we look into the crystal ball here and think 10, 15, 20 years hence, uh, we'll probably be referring to Vanguard as an advice provider. Hmm. And I think the developments that we've seen this year sort of foreshadow that. Um, Vanguard has really led the way in terms of democratizing investing through indexing and lowering fees. Um, and to, to such an extent that it's now facing fee competition from its biggest rivals, which is an interesting turn. But if you think about that, uh, Vanguard has democratized what uh, finance people like to call beta, which is to say tracking indexes, tracking exposures to asset classes. And then it really becomes, can you do that, provide high quality active options and blend that together in an advice context that helps investors do the right things for the right reasons at the right time. And that's what they're trying to do with their advice business. Uh, we mentioned Vanguard Personal Advisor Services. Vanguard Digital Advisor is a robo version. They're making improvements on that. They're going to add tax loss harvesting, for example, in 2022. So I think that 10, 15 years from now, we'll be talking about Vanguard, the advice provider. Well, Alec, thank you so much for your time and your perspective today. It was a busy year for Vanguard. 2022 will probably be another busy year for Vanguard. So I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more next year. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services discusses effective diversification strategies for 2022. Hi, I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. It's shaping up to be yet another terrific year for U.S. stocks. As such, many investors may be thinking about how to effectively diversify their portfolios for 2022. Joining me today to discuss diversification in general and which strategies may yield the greatest benefit is Amy Arnott. Amy is a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Hi, Amy. Nice to see you. Hi, thanks for having me. So you did some work earlier this year, actually some in-depth research on portfolio diversification and correlations in general. So let's take a step back and first talk about what portfolio diversification is and why it's important. Sure. So portfolio diversification is one of the most important principles for effective investing. Um, so by adding additional securities, you can reduce your security security specific risk. And then if you diversify across asset classes, you can also reduce the risk of your entire portfolio. 
Um, so this goes back to research Harry Markowitz did in the 1950s. And he found that the risk of a portfolio isn't just the risk of each component added up, but also depends on the correlation between those different portfolio components and how closely they move together. So if you can find securities or asset classes that have relatively low correlations, you can actually reduce your portfolio's overall risk profile. So let's talk a little bit about that and, and the research you did earlier this year. You looked at the diversification benefits of adding different types of asset classes and styles to a U.S. equity-focused portfolio. And what did you find to be the best diversifiers? So we looked at both the shorter-term pe periods, um, specifically 2020, and longer periods going back 20 years or so. And the patterns that we found were actually pretty similar um, between both the short-term and the long-term. So we found that fixed-income securities, um, including cash, short-term bonds, and longer-term bonds, um, especially higher-quality bonds, were the best diversifiers. Um, gold actually did relatively well as a portfolio diversifier. And then some other areas, um, such as international stocks that you might expect to add diversification value, um, actually ended up moving more closely in tandem with the U.S. market than a lot of investors might have expected. So then let's talk a little bit about a few different types of investments that you might think are good diversifiers, but in fact haven't been, according to your research. Commodities was one of those. Um, they haven't really been terrific diversifiers. Let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. So commodities are basically raw materials that are used to manufacture other goods, and um, their prices tend to be driven by supply and demand. And in the past, we found that commodities can be fairly good portfolio diversifiers. Um, but over the past several years, their correlations have actually trended up. Um, another um, key aspect of that is the fact that a lot of major commodity indexes are very heavy on energy, um, which obviously you know, hurt performance when we saw oil prices plummet in early 2020. Now, another... Um pocket or type of investment that hasn't really been a super diversifier that you might expect are alternatives. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So alternatives are another area that I think a lot of people think of as being good for diversification, but it, they may or may not actually work that way. Um, so things like bear market funds obviously move in the opposite direction as stocks. So they did provide some diversification value. But other alternatives um, actually had fairly high correlations with the U.S. market. And then you did mention fixed income securities earlier in your comments. And long-term treasuries have, in fact, been really great diversifiers over time. Um, but there are other types of bonds that haven't been as effective at diversifying an equity portfolio, those being emerging markets debt, lower quality corporate bonds, and bank loans. So let's talk a little bit about those. Right. So these are all things that have kind of security-specific risk or other factors that drive their performance. And in the case of something like high-yield bonds, we actually see that they have a fairly high correlation with stocks. So even though they are bonds and that you're getting a fixed coupon payment, um, it, if you're adding them to an equity-only portfolio, it's not necessarily going to improve your 
risk profile all that much. And um, the same thing applies to other areas like bank loans and emerging markets debt. So Amy, given all that, how do you suggest that investors think about diversification for 2022, especially if they have a pretty U.S. equity heavy portfolio? So I think one important thing to keep in mind is um, we've heard a lot of negative things about bonds with the idea being they've performed so well over the past three or four decades. Interest rates are now close to an all-time low. They probably won't generate the same type of returns in the future as they did in the past. And all of that is true, but that doesn't mean that they uh, don't still have a valuable role to play in a portfolio in terms of reducing risk. So I would make sure that you have the right balance um, of, in your portfolio between stocks and bonds that fits with your time horizon and your risk tolerance. And then, as you mentioned, um, international stocks are another important area to look at if you have a U.S. heavy portfolio. So the U.S. market has definitely been the best place to be over the past 10 years or so, and that was also true for 2021. Um, so now I think is a good time to look at your portfolio and the balance between U.S. and international and make sure you have enough of a balance between the two. Well, Amy, thank you for your time today and for these tips about how we can diversify our portfolios in 2022. We appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be here. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. shares tips for new retirees. I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar. The year 2021 is shaping up to be yet another very strong year for the equity market. Joining me to discuss some of the pitfalls that retirees can fall into in very strong microenvironments is Christine Benz. She's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. Now, you say one of the first pitfalls that new retirees can fall into is that they take too high of a withdrawal rate when they're first entering and starting out in retirement. And that may seem counterintuitive to someone who's a new retiree because they'll think, well, this has been a, a bull market. Why can't I take a larger percentage for withdrawals than I might otherwise? Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive. But the key issue is that when we've seen the market go up and up and up, that tends to mean that the raw materials for good returns in the future are a little bit less. And that's what we have today, where we have very low fixed income yields. We have fairly high equity valuations, especially with certain parts of the market. And so that argues for setting a conservative withdrawal rate as your starting withdrawal. But remember, this is a percentage of your portfolio. What really matters is how much in dollars you can take out and spend. And the good news is your portfolio balance is very likely enlarged. If you've been enjoying the strong equity market gains, you may need to take a, a smaller percentage. And in fact, our recent research would argue that rather than sort of the 4% guideline, maybe like low threes is a better place to start. The good news is it's from an enlarged portfolio. And so your take-home uh, withdrawal may be just as high as it would have been a couple of years ago when a higher withdrawal rate was supported. 
So how can retirees know whether the withdrawal system that they've set up is might be too aggressive? What should they be thinking about? Well, I think they should be thinking about their portfolio, what it looks like. So if you have a balanced portfolio, that will tend to support a higher withdrawal rate than if you have one that's super conservative. It's rare that retirees would have very conservative portfolios today because fixed income and cash are just so low yielding and unattractive. But nonetheless, you wouldn't want to be too conservative. Um, you want to be thinking about your withdrawal rate, your withdrawal period. So our research looked at a 25 to 30 year period. If you have a shorter time horizon, say you're a 75 year old retiring, you can arguably use a higher withdrawal rate because your time horizon in retirement, your anticipated time horizon is lower. So factor in some of those considerations as well. Now, pivoting over to more the portfolio, you know, you say another pitfall that retirees can fall into is this idea of confusing their risk tolerance with their risk capacity. And let's walk through what the difference is and why it matters. Right. I think some people might hear this and think it's sophistry. Like, why are we talking <laughs> about this? But the reason it matters is risk tolerance is how you feel about losing money. So people often take these risk tolerance questionnaires about, well, if the market dropped 10%, what, you know, would you have a sleepless night and so forth? That's how you feel. Risk capacity is how much risk you can take and afford to continue on with your goals. Will big losses disrupt your plan is sort of the fundamental question. And the real issue for retirees is that oftentimes they have really high risk tolerance. They are battle tested, right? <laughs> They've been through a lot of market downturns. They know that stocks recover. So, you know, they are sort of in the position where they say 90% equity waiting, sign me up. I've done that. I know that that's the place to be. The issue is that their risk capacity, because they're going to be spending from their portfolio soon, is diminished at least for those near-term portfolio withdrawals. So you need to de-risk that portion of your portfolio that you expect to spend. I would say in fewer than 10 years, you need to de-risk that portion of your portfolio. So there you're thinking about cash, you're thinking about high-quality bonds, maybe a complement of dividend-paying stocks, but not all stocks. But you really want to reduce the risk potential in that portion of your portfolio. Then for withdrawals for 10 years and beyond, have added it with stocks, go ahead and be aggressive. But those near-term expenditures are what you want to lock down and keep safe. And that'll really help ensure peace of mind in retirement. Now, related to that, there are some retirees that would, of course, look at this rising stock market and be like, oh, I need to get more conservative right now. Talk a little bit about how conservative is too conservative. How should you be thinking about that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I could see retirees sort of looking ahead, hearing, hearing this conversation and thinking, I'll go all cash, I'll go all bonds. The real risk of that, well, like a few risks. One is longevity, which is that many people embarking on retirement today may be retired for 25 or 30 years or more. So you can't afford to sort of sit down in the very low-risk securities and not have much of a return on your portfolio. You need the risk that accompanies stocks. And then another issue is that inflation is on the move. Inflation is not this benign, non-issue that it was for so many years. It's a real issue right now. So the opportunity cost of having too much in safe investments is arguably greater than it's been in a couple of decades. So I wouldn't de-risk a, port, port, a portfolio entirely. I think you need to have a balance. 
And I think you need to be prepared potentially for some volatility over the next few years. And then lastly, Christine, another pitfall is sort of more of a personal one for retirees. And it's the whole idea of giving, whether it's charitable or you're giving to family members. Uh, You know, how can retirees make sure that they don't sort of forget about having enough for themselves, frankly, before donating and helping out other people? This is such an issue, Susan, anecdotally and speaking with older adults. They have such a desire to help their adult children. They want to help grandchildren. They want to help charities. But I do think that some older adults do have a propensity to over give. And so the key is to really look at your own assets, look at whether your assets can tide you through your retirement comfortably, get some help from a financial advisor. So you're looking for enough to get yourself by, but also a comfortable cushion. And that's especially important if you have uninsured long-term care expenditures where you haven't insured against that risk and it's a risk factor for you. I like the idea of setting aside, I hate to introduce another bucket, but even (laughs) thinking about a giving bucket where you've determined, well, this is money that I can afford to give away, whether it's to my loved ones or to charity. And the beauty of that is that lifetime gifts are so much better Mm -hmm. than gifts after death. You get to see the fruits of your gifts. You get to see people enjoy them and and use the funds. So I like the idea of really doing some work on the front end to decide how much you can give and then potentially segregating those assets you may even use. If you're giving to charity, you may even use a donor-advised fund. If you plan to give to family members, you might have some sort of separate account. But segregating those assets from your spendable assets, I think, will provide peace of mind. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for these sort of workarounds and solutions to some of these pitfalls that retirees commonly fall into. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, Robbie Greengold from Morningstar Research Services rounds up the biggest takeaways from Fidelity in 2021. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar, here to talk about Fidelity in 2021 and what we might see from the firm in 2022 is Robbie Greengold. Robbie is a strategist with Morningstar's manager research group, and Fidelity is among the fun families he follows. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for being here today. Hey, Susan. So let's start out with fun flows in 2021. What um, have we seen from Fidelity regarding flows? What have been some of the stronger, where have some of the stronger inflows been, and where maybe have they seen some redemptions? Well, we've seen an acceleration of their net inflows uh, within their their lineup of, of passive funds. So index funds and ETFs, those have seen really strong organic growth, particularly for the bond and international equity funds. Uh, in terms of their, their active equity lineup, or not just their equity lineup, but their entire active lineup, uh, we, we've seen kind of, we've seen tepid, growth in some asset classes, like within fixed income, uh, but that's been offset by some modest net outflows. So in, in aggregate, we've seen really just flat organic growth across the, uh, across the active lineup. And then let's talk a little bit about performance in, in broader strokes. Um, how in particular have the equity funds been doing sort of relative to their peers in, in categories in 2021? In 2021, uh, through November, the end of no- November, the, the equity lineup has, has posted solid results uh, versus their peers. Uh, when I last looked at it, I, I think it was um, about 30% of all, of all the, of all the uh, equity funds beat their peer averages. Mm. 
And you know, when we look at those that have, have really trailed their peers, there have not been that many, uh, rel relatively few at Fidelity. So I, I think it's been a, a solid year so far. Now, in particular, Fidelity is known for, you know, sort of growth-oriented equity strategies. You've actually written about that recently. Um, how did this group, this sort of subgroup in particular, perform? They've done, they've done really well relative to their peers. You look at some of the biggest ones and some of the ones that we hold in really high regard, such as Fidelity Growth Company that's run by Steve Weimer. Uh, that, uh, that fund has done exceptionally well, uh, mostly because of its top holding, NVIDIA, which has, has seen incredible, incredible gains over the past year. But not just Fidelity Growth Company, also Fidelity Blue Chip Growth and, and Magellan and Fidelity OTC. These are, these are some big, large growth funds that have continued to, to, to really thrive in 2021. Let's pivot and talk a little bit maybe about the fixed income and the allocation funds and what sort of performance we've seen there relative to peers or categories. Well, if you look at all the funds and just if you, if you count up all the funds that have outperformed you know, middle of the road or underperformed, what, what you see is that most of them have been sort of middle of the road performer, middle of the road performers relative, relative to, their, uh, to their category peers. But if you look at where the, where the assets really reside, you know, where, are, where are fund holders invested the most, um, it, it, it's really the, the bigger funds that have done d done well. So most of the assets have outperformed, uh, but if you just look at at the funds themselves, you know most of the funds are, are sort of middle of the road performers. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about some new fund launches that we saw in 2021 from Fidelity. Um, thematic funds seem to be a, an area of interest for the firm. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, Fidelity is really considering. Uh, under the umbrella of thematic funds, they've got a, a suite of, of, of disruptive, uh, a suite of disruptive funds that kind of go across categories. You know, a, a lot, several of these disruptive equity funds are are, are sector focused funds, and then uh, and then there's also one that kind of spans across sectors. So so they consider that this is underneath the umbrella of thematics. But then they have um, they, they've launched some other. Uh, other funds that are more sustainably uh, oriented uh, along the, the theme of, of ESG, they consider that under the umbrella of thematic investing. And Fidelity has also made a concerted effort to, uh, to really build out and formalize its, its ESG research efforts to, su to support some of these uh, dedicated products. So, so those are some of the key ones we've seen over the past year or two. And what about Fidelity's push into active ETFs? What did we see on that front this yeah, year? Yeah, we, we have seen active, uh, active ETFs that have um, really mirrored or resembled some of the strategies that have, that, that have existed for years already, like, the, for, for example, Magellan, mm -hmm. Fidelity Magellan. That's an, uh, uh, an equity fund that's been around a long time, and now, it's a, now you can have it in a, an ETF format that closely resembles it's its legacy open and mutual fund, which of course is is also available, and um, and so the, so we've seen this across the equity funds, uh, not all of them, uh, the most prominent ones, um, and then and then also within fixed income as well, we've seen a few. 
Um, now, Fidelity released a pretty big piece of manager-related news a few weeks ago, announcing that Joel Tillinghast from Fidelity Low Price Stock will be retiring in the not-too-distant future. Right. What do we make of that pretty significant manager change? It is significant. Yeah, yeah. Joel, Joel Tillinghast, he has been at the helm of Fidelity Low Price Stock uh, for for over 30 years, yeah. I think. And uh, so he's, he's just, he's one of the industry's best managers. Um, and so to see him depart, and it's it's not until two years from now, mm -hmm. 2023, that he he plans to officially step down from the fr from the strategy. Uh, it's it's a big deal, but yeah, I I think that investors in the fund they can feel good about the direction of it because uh, recently Fidelity named uh, two co-lead managers who uh, who bring complementary experience and, and I think that they are are, are really a, a couple of capable investors who will work together uh, to co-lead the product after Tillinghast departs. So I, I haven't even named them yet. I'm referring to Sam Shamovitz and Morgan Peck who have separately run, uh, run Sam Shamovitz, he ran uh, an international small cap fund and Morgan Peck ran a domestic small cap fund. Uh, they've demonstrated success elsewhere, and, and I think that what they can do at low price stock is going to be uh, really, it's really going to give the, the fund a continued advantage, um, but still, it's, it, it still is a loss for, for the fund to see Tillinghast depart. Yeah, can you talk a little bit maybe about key person risk in general at Fidelity? Because you have people like Joel Tillinghast, who've sort of been these, you know, sole managers on these funds, who of course had tons of analyst support. It's not like they're completely on their own. But again, you know, they, they are sort of this old school, individually managed funds a lot, several of them. You know, how should investors be thinking about key person risk at Fidelity funds? And are there any funds in particular that you think are at higher risk maybe than others right now? Sure. It really is more, more often the case than not that the equity funds are run by solo portfolio managers. And that's, that's, that's just been Fidelity's preference for a long time. And so there are, oh boy, there are quite a few big funds that are run by individuals like Fidelity Contra Fund run yeah. by Will, Will Danoff and uh, as, I, as I mentioned Fidelity Growth Company with Steve Weimer and so there, there are you know, many of these strategies with billions in assets that, um, that, that just need to that just operate with this ongoing risk and you know, sometimes Fidelity will plan well for a, a, a transition from, you know, one manager to the to the next. I think the the transition with Joel Tillinghast to these capable co-managers. I think that 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 is a lengthy transition that um, that gives fund holders time to react to that news and to to reposition if if they if they like. But you know, this is just this is just the, the way that Fidelity operates, and I, I think that fund holders should certainly be aware. So, gaze into your crystal ball a little bit, Robbie. What might we expect to see from Fidelity in 2022? You know, for example, do you think they're going to continue to make a little bit more of a push in the active ETF space, or, or anything else? I think that I think that it's reasonable to expect that we could see more active ETFs coming. Uh, Fidelity has hinted that. 
maybe maybe international active ETFs or something that they would like to do, but there's a little bit of a little bit of difficulty in actually rolling those out, given the structure of ETFs and the the uh, the implications in, in terms of the the trading of the ETFs and the locations of the stocks that need to be traded. So so that that that's certainly a possibility. Uh, Fidelity has hinted that they might want to release uh, and launch some some more quantitative oriented mm -hmm. strategies. Uh, and then uh, I think what 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 a lot of folks are watching for are. Our, our Bitcoin ETFs, which Fidelity uh, in the U.S. is prepared uh, is prepared to launch, um, but uh, it just has to, has to wait for regulatory approval and the like. So I think that those would be sort of some key key things we should be watching for 2022. Well, we know you'll be keeping an eye out for that, Ravi. And um, when these things do materials it materialize, if they materialize, we'll be sure to talk with you about it. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We're taking a brief holiday hiatus and will return to publishing on Friday, January 7th. In the meantime, stay up to date with all of the latest Morningstar research and ratings by visiting Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.